Welcome to the AD Aesthete, hosted by me, Mitch Owens, Architectural Digest's Decorative Arts Editor. Architectural criticism has been a constant for centuries. The examination, sometimes brutally, of a building for its genius as well as its flaws. Interior design, on the other hand, gets the white glove treatment admired, but rarely much more. In this episode of the AD Aesthete, a discussion that was to have taken place in public under the auspices of the Sir John Soane's Foundation brings together me, Wendy Goodman of New York Magazine, and Suzanne Stevens of Architectural Record. We discuss that critical conundrum as well as the history of aesthetic judgments from the critics themselves to what they've praised or what they've trashed. I hope you enjoy the show. Suzanne, architectural criticism or architectural reporting has always been held in very high regard. I mean, it's very serious. People pay attention to it. There are whole university programs devoted to the study of of architecture and its meaning, but little in terms of interior design and its meaning. Surely at some point in time, uh, architecture and interior design in terms of fields of study diverged with one remaining paramount and one remaining the quiet mistress in the back alley. Can you talk a bit about that? When did that occur? When they started diverging. Yes. Yes. Because they were always together. I mean, and they were discussed together for hundreds of years. Well, let's let's put it this way. Um, Going back to the Renaissance, there were, uh, you know, it was considered all one thing, one total work of art, Gesamtskunstwerk. And um, at a certain point, the um, architects started, were designing architecture and upholsters, this was kind of like a 19th century thing, came in and they started, No, it might have been 18th century, they started getting into the act and there was a tension between the architects, this was in Europe and France and, mm-hmm. and England, the architects started getting a little upset and at one point, for example, Percy and Fontaine were really uh, highly regarded because they could do both. And, and, and those were Napoleon's favorite, favorite sort of decorators slash architects. Yes. And they believed in both and they really did both. But there was a kind of a separation. And for example, one uh, French writer theorist, Camus de Mazières, was uh, um, always castigating upholsters for being too overdone, flouncy, not paying enough attention to the architectural principles so so that's that happens that started right then architects have always actually wanted to get more often have wanted to get more into the act of doing interior Mm -hmm. design and uh, that's why for example Frank Lloyd Wright would want to do the furniture as well as the architecture for the buildings and do everything and Le Corbusier would want to do built-ins so Mm -hmm. there was always this kind of tension about what the, the professions, but they did go ahead and separate. And a lot of clients actually um, like the separation because they think architects today are too specialized in structure and, and building techniques and practice and probably don't have an idea about texture, textiles, color, or um, history of furniture. And some of them mm. don't, some of them do. So there is this kind of split today. Then the criticism, is uh, something that came along. It was easier to do uh, 
as um, architects were de developing uh, their own professional critical tradition in the country around the mid 19th century. Clarence Cook started um, our writing in the in the mid century in New York about architecture. For the end of the century, he started uh, writing about interiors also, and came out with a book on the house beautiful. Mm. So he kind of changed. So he was one of the crossovers, or, or bringing it back to get trying to bring a critical perspective back to something that had been a practicing situation. Now, can can we talk a bit, Wendy, as well? Um, who are the critics? I mean, I understand sort of the, the, the concept of, of being a critical eye for architecture, but that seems to be a bigger stage, whereas a lot of what, um, certainly what Wendy and I are interested in are, are the interiors, the way, the way they live, the way they work, the way um, they, they, they actually express one's uh, aesthetic viewpoint as well as one's ideas of comfort. Well, I think it's really it's a really interesting question because I think today the critics are the professionals who bring the stories, the journalists, perhaps who could answer. Um, for instance, um, interior design is part of a write-up of a of a restaurant. Now, any mm -hmm. any review you read about a restaurant, chances are the interior design will be noted first even before they get to the food. And it's all about, you know, how does it work as an ambiance? Are you comfortable there? What's the lighting like? Is it comfortable? How, can, what's the noise level? So I think that critics, there are no sort of interior design critics, there are interior design editors. And I think as an editor, you kind of serve the public perhaps as a conveyor belt to each person having their own criticism. Because all we do as journalists, I think, is present the story and say to the reader, you be the judge. I mean, how often are you asked, Mitch, well, how could you do that story? I mean, it's like, ooh, and it's like my answer is, well, it's not my taste that I'm going after. It is, is it a valid story? And if I feel it's a valid story and it's worth your time as the reader, here are my reasons for presenting it to you. And right. you can be the critic. It's, it's your taste or you're not your taste. Well, and, 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 and interiors are, are so much more idiosyncratic yeah. than, say, a formalized building would be. So actually sort of trying to criticize an interior or, or critique an interior, not criticize an interior, review an interior. It, it it shunts you off to one side. It's almost it's it's almost impossible because one person's well placed lamp is another person's ill conceived illumination. Absolutely. You know, and, and whereas whereas a building it it has a a larger platform, but I don't think it means it's more important. Well, I'd, I'd like to jump in about uh, criticism and uh, critique and all that. Critique, um, as I often understand it, is and an analysis as well as it can be critical, meaning negative and positive. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to do both. But critique is more like the noun for it and criticizes what you do. But you have different criteria, for example, functional. This can be more general to the interior design. Functional uh, criteria, you have aesthetic. And that, of course, um, becomes more uh, subjective in a sense, but mm. you'll have to have an argument and um, make your case 
uh, for your aesthetic judgment. And you can have a symbolic or cultural, and that's more analytical maybe, of, of putting uh, Mario Praz often would talk about something in terms of the symbolic and cultural meaning or the psychological meaning of the person. But, you know, then you're hearing a voice of one person and it's understood that that one person is going to be somewhat subjective, that it's not an objective thing. And mm. you can have general and specific ideas, but mostly you develop the argument and you, you have to persuade your reader and your, um, you know, the viewer. They can... But let's take a restaurant. Let's do okay. all that all of us have been to and talk about how how we would judge that if we walked in. Do we all know Marjorelle? Yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, Marjorelle is is one of my favorite restaurants. And you may say, okay, I work for Architectural Record, which does modern, right? And why would I like Marjorelle, which I believe the interior designer is Michael Smith. Yes. Right. And it's done in a very nice, elegantly executed and well-crafted traditional, classical traditional setting. Mm. The reason I like it is because it uh, allows you to walk in to a place, pass through to your table without bumping into, you know, this is going to be a different question, of course, coming up with a post-COVID, but bumping into other people and there's not ever kind of a too much of a bustle. There is this garden in the back, mm -hmm. which if you want to have a, a more private conversation, you head toward that if you want. If you want to be more seen and be seen up in the front, or if they want you to be more seen and be seen up in the front, the uh, Charles Masson, then you can sit there. There are side there are little side tables along the, the walls, and this color scheme is uh, very pleasant. It's not, um, it's not aggressive. The lighting is divine. It's just soft in the, the ambiance. And when you look at something, it's, you're, you can enjoy the craft. You don't have to remember exactly what period it's from, but you could just enjoy it. What I really love about Majorelle as a aesthetic experience again if we're sort of reviewing a space and how it works i uh, and, and again I'll, i will look at someone's apartment the same way or someone's house the same way it's just you would address it in a different manner based on your focus is the sequence of space sequence of spaces in majorelle that sort of small to larger to narrower to higher to lower there's a there's an if it makes sense, there's a narrative yeah. of space as you're walking through it and you're experiencing it in a way that um, I think you can certainly experience in a domestic um, environment. I know, Wendy, you've written about houses and apartments at New York Magazine where and elsewhere where um, you, you do follow the space, you do follow it. And that's, in a way, a review, in a way, a, a critique um, merely putting out, does it work? Is it abrupt? And if it's abrupt, is it supposed to be abrupt? Right. You know? I think also implicit in that is like the intention. Like if you go into a space, a home for instance, I think the intention is very clear. If it, there is an authentic living experience or that home was done by a decorator to be photographed by a magazine or that was done in a, sh you know, they had a grand idea but it was not executed well. 
and there was no discipline and real mm. sort of professionalism in, I want to do, you know, a Federalist whatever, and I want a, you know, neoclassic this or that. If, if someone is just kind of patching things together and not really invested in the process and the excellence, the way it's executed, I think is, is either makes or breaks a story, quite honestly. So I think in our decision-making, we're acting as critics, if you will, as an editor, because we're basically saying, yes, this will work as a story, or no, this doesn't actually cut it as a story. My, one of my favorite writers, Mary Pross, has often talked about the, you know, the interior being an expression of the client, has written about that in his illustrated history of furnishing. However, it's so interesting that he wrote about the Johnson Museum found uh, Johnson Museum in London and Lincolnston Fields. In a way, I'll just give a, you a quick quote. Since I'm on the board of the Johnson Foundation here in New York, this, of course, is, uh, has struck us uh, quite a, violently that Mario Praz would say this. He said when he first saw the museum, and, and he wrote the book in 1964, he said, I see that house as still, still as a tomb at the bottom of a sea of fog with its funereal Egyptian motifs wed to the less severe Greek and Roman ones. That house that has the air of a museum and a catacomb with bust, sarcophagi, urns, bobber-leaves, furniture, dark mahogany, smoky ceilings, smoky ceiling paintings. And he just felt, felt that a museum should be, the surroundings become a museum of the soul. And I think he thought John Soane had, had some qu questionable um, characteristics in his soul. So it was a very, it's a very striking way of criticizing an interior and something that, you know, we on the Soane Foundation always have loved about the building because outside you have this very strict white Portland stone uh, neoclassical linear facade. And then you walk in and you, you come into these conjuries of spaces of small and dark and, and lit from above through a skylight. Then you have a pendentive dome creating a room within a room for the breakfast room. And you have other kind of uh, breakfast room with just a, a uh, gently sloped starfish ceiling. And all these different kinds of spaces and all these different layers and not axial, space, spatial movements deflected. So that that, you know, we see a different thing than, say, Praz did when he saw the zone. And that's, but both, both, are, both are valid, I would say. I'd say what happens is you leave the debate open. As, and you can still criticize, but leave the debate open. However, I won't leave the debate open if there's a restaurant that has a kitchen right next to a dining table and they, and they want to try to put somebody there. And I think that's reprehensible for anybody to have to expect to sit near a kitchen. And they, don't, they never do the division and the layering of separation of kitchen space to the, to the public well enough in so many restaurants. So that's mm -hmm. my pet peeve. Aside from acoustics, don't get me started. <laughs> But I do, I think it's really interesting when you study something like Sir John Stone's museum, it's, it's impossible to discuss the architecture without discussing the decoration and vice versa. I mean, they're so symbiotically intertwined. But the architecture from outside is mis misleading. Because very. you're going into a very kind of yeah. uh, abstracted, you know, classical, modern, building and you expect just um, open, wide open spaces inside done in a very abstract and neoclassical way. Instead, it's encrusted 
and coming. You know, everything is more encrusted and then little glimmers of light up in this corner from the mirror, convex mirrors and the concave um, uh, glazing and all that. So it's, it's a, quite an, an interesting um, uh, separation of private, of um, outside to inside. It reminds me of Venturi's complexities and contradictions. That's what makes the zone so amazing because of that complexity and contradiction. And I think in terms of discussing how you read an interior, like Wendy, how, how you read in interiors in, in your articles through the, you know, the personalities of the owners, you know, the, the, the Sone House, uh, the, the Sone Museum, it's, it's the psychological study. I mean, yeah. you, you can't write about it without writing about his state of mind <laughs> and, and his marriage and his children. It's just impossible. I mean, I remember the first time I went there, the first and only time I went there, and I was as mystified as when I went to Tony Duquette's house for the first time, because I just thought, what is this? What mind created this? I was so mystified and intrigued and like won over by the madness of it and the beauty and the oddness. How the space is kept leading you into a space that you would not expect. You know, one thing did not prepare you for the next. And I think there's nothing more wonderful than a house or a space. From the outside, you think, oh, I'm going to meet some, someone or something. And it's totally different. I think that's the joy of it. That happens also with Philip Johnson when he went to Taliesin by Frank Lloyd Wright. Mm -hmm. And he just started, he, he leads you up there as a, uh, this is a famous talk he gave around 1957, 58, 59. And he leads you up to Taliesin and, and he's talking about this scrubbly, you know, driveway. And as you see this little kind of camp thing looking building, and then he st starts taking you through there and there's unpredictability and surprise and space and light. And then finally he meets Frank Lloyd Wright he says that's the essence of architecture and he's has taken you all the way through it and he shows you the principles of architecture which have nothing to do with structure or function and then he ends up with this kind of um, experience as experience the spatial progression and the and surprise so kind of interesting very there are these kinds of criticisms that you know involve both architecture and interiors Mm. The ones we're looking for, I suppose, today is the ones where it might be done by one architect and the interiors might be done by another. That's what I, I wonder if we have any examples of something where two different, uh, an interior designer and an architect have, have come together and created something that is unexpected and fabulous, or that is not, <laughs> that we want to criticize. <laughs> No, I was just—I was just sort of trying to think of sort of interiors, and you know, and I really like to study interiors from a a, a, a biograph, an autobiographical standpoint. I mean, Wendy, you know that when your great friend um, Gloria Vanderbilt, the late Gloria Vanderbilt, said that all decorating is autobiography. Yeah. So there's suddenly this sense of personality that instantly sets interior decoration aside from architecture. I, I would think in some, some ways, Elsie DeWolf has a lot to answer for, yeah. um, for becoming so popular in the early 20th century. And the idea of you putting your individual stamp on a room, not that it had not been done before, but the, popula but, but the popularity of it, the sort of the ubiquity of her um, 
elevating the interior over the exterior. I mean, and could that have been one of our great divides? And also how bold she was into just sweeping way, you know, she made that move sweeping way, the Victorian interior and, you know, painted fresh paint and just freshening the whole experience of an interior. It didn't have to sort of drown you with all of this stuff. But it also made making an interior seem laissez-faire yes. in comparison to architecture. Yes. So I could see how her popularity would have presumably annoyed a number of architects at the time who are saying, you're not taking this seriously. I wonder, because um, if you have architects like McKinley and White, mm -hmm. and they're working with Elsie DeWolf, and they, naturally, they were, being architects, they want to do their own. But if they're working with somebody like um, Elsie DeWolf, she's calming uh, it down. She's allowing architecture to show itself. And she's allowing the windows to be expressed instead of covering them up always with curtains, 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 and upholstery, upholstery, upholstery. So that there is something that's happening that is more where the architecture principles start coming out. And maybe um, I'd have to look at more into uh, her reception from uh, by architects mm -hmm. and see it. But I would say that she's one example where I, I think they they might appreciate her more. Now, what about Dorothy Draper? <laughs> That's another one of those instances where, as Wendy said, you go up to a house or a building and you expect to see one thing, and then you walk in, and it's sheer madness. I mean, this is what I find really interesting, is that period design magazines, and I mean ones that prided themselves on, on criticism, review, et cetera, they would merely present her interiors without talking about right. them. Right. You know, they, were, they were popular and they were overwrought and they were Baroque and they were, but they were destination architecture. Yeah. So therefore that again lived outside of, that had its own little niche. It wasn't meant to be practical or functional or anything. All it really was meant to do was to take you into another world. And that's how you had to address it from a but, journalist standpoint. But, 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 but. The Metropolitan Museum restaurant that she did in the fifties. Well, that's true. And um, the first time I saw that, and I was I was um, about eleven years old when I first saw it, and I was shocked because I was I knew I was entering a classical, Beaux Arts kind of classical building, and then you walk down and you go to the end where the Greek and the Romans are, you know, now the Shelby White. And there was this pool and there was this thing, um, almost Las Vegas, except I didn't know about Las Vegas. But I mean, you know, I was <laughs> shocked. I thought it was so overdone and so um, irresponsible for the Metropolitan Museum to put that in. And um, so I was highly critical of it, but I didn't write about it. <laughs> you remember still being horrified after all these years. <laughs> I didn't have a venue to write about it, so um, a place where I could do it. So, but I, I will, I'll never forget. Then, of course, she had had a comeback, right? And then she had a show at the Museum of the City of New York, and everybody's going, "Oh, I wish that restaurant still were there." And look at this. What is the hotel she did in the South and um, Green? Oh, the Greenbrier. Oh, it's you know Dorothy Draper. So 
times change, tastes change, and our critical judgment changes. But my critical judgment at that period was not that bit different, I found later, from a normal person who was slightly older. Hmm. You know, people really didn't like it at the time. A lot of people didn't like it. But the public did, and they found they could have lunch there and sit around the pool and enjoy it. And, and then people did later who, who were more sophisticated. Hmm. <laughs> the change... They got to be, uh, the taste changed, so. So true. Now, Wendy, I mean, speaking, to, to go back for a moment, you had mentioned Tony Duquette. And, you know, that's the sort of interior, these phantasmagorical domestic spaces that um, beg to be analyzed. Yeah. I mean, you can't just write about them as decorative environments. They have to be analyzed like you're Freud. <laughs> laying him out on, on the a settee about, and talking to him. Yeah, the thing that I wrote in um, my book was, you know, one person's heaven is another person's hell as far as uh, personal interiors because the taste level, I mean, Tony Duquette was a maximalist, but he was also, he. it's like he, he had a, a fever. It, it was like a design fever because he actually could not help himself was my feeling in the end of the way he created and the way he could not leave things alone. And it was, it was, you know, that's coming out of not being, oh, I'm an interior designer. It's coming out of, I'm an artist who's just expressing himself like an octopus with all these arms doing a million, and, you know, he was doing costume design. He was mm. doing jewelry design. He was doing what, uh, so many different things. It was just that he couldn't help it. He actually couldn't help himself. You know, and those interiors were put together with spit and polish. It was a full gesture. You know, it wasn't half done at all, ever. And then somebody opposite of that would be Ward Bennett, who oh, actually wow. began yes. as, you know, uh, designing. Well, he started designing for Hattie Carnegie windows in um, right. 57th Street. And then he progressed from there to uh, chairs and lamps and whatever. But he... Then he ended up in his life also designing houses, including his own out in, in the Springs. But and, and his houses, though, when you look at those interiors, Ward Bennett, they're again a kind of interior that you want to intellectualize it. You want to really discuss yes. it. It's not about patterns and fringe. Not that mm -hmm. there's anything wrong with that. I live in a house full of patterns and fringe. But there's something about it that makes you want to address it I guess, in a more serious manner than you would say, Sister Parrish. Yeah, yeah. And he would want you to address it in a serious manner. He was, everything he did, he took very seriously. And he would say, this is, this is the way it is. It's got to be this way about not only my work, but it, it's, it's the right way to, um, he would not consider going into a Tony Duquette or D Dorothy Draper interior as the answer he would or that you could have different different strokes for different folks kind of thing he would he mm -hmm. he he wanted that kind of modern very um abstracted um crafted yeah. us using natural materials blonde oak whatever and he he was forceful about that he was always um lecturing but today we have people like uh, Peter Marino. We have architects who do interiors as well. There's a sort of design build mentality, I think more today than there has been. Would, would you agree with that? Do you think that's true? That you have architects who also have, you know, in their- in Well, their yes, I, I, I think 
Two, you, you, you look at someone like Gil Schaefer. Yeah. Who does ravishing houses and the interiors to match. Right, right. I mean, so it's very much, in a way, it's, it's almost a throwback to Frank Lloyd Wright and Lutyens. I mean, mm -hmm. people uh, tend to forget how much of an impact Lutyens had on the decors of his houses. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of color theory and, and, and you know, and, and uh, you know, specifying a, a green dyed wood with yellow curtains and a black floor. You know, I mean, those were his ideas. They weren't a, a, a designer, a decorator coming in. Um, right. It was a fusion of, of him uh, doing it all, but it didn't look architectural in the way that we're popularly imagining it. Thinking of the interior designer who's an trained as an architect, who was working on 220 Central Park South with Robert Stern. Oh, Despont, sorry. Oh, uh, yes, Terry Despont, exactly. Terry Despont. Okay, he's, he was trained as an architect, and he also does interiors in a very serious way, and he knows his antiques, and he knows his colors, and he knows his fabrics. So does actually Peter Marino. I mean, Peter Marino studied architecture also, but um, anyway, Terry Despont. Uh, it's an interesting situation that uh, Despont, is working on this apartment building and doing these interiors with an architect who has his own interior design uh, department. And yet they're getting along very well together. So somehow uh, an article could be developed once the building is finished. And of course, it's, everything is on pause right now, but once we get to see inside, we hope um, uh, that they'll let us that we can see how the what the benefit is of having Despont within a stern architectural tower, residential well, tower. That would, that would be a very interesting story, the, yeah. the, the, the combination of the two, which immediately makes me remember Despont's work at the Getty. Yeah. Which, you know, yeah, people's, people's eyebrows and hair went straight up. And then you look Richard Meyer. Really beautiful. Really Meyer wasn't a big fan of it. But they're very beautiful for yeah. what, for, yeah. for, for their purpose, these sort of quasi-historical backgrounds, and, and they're beautiful, I mean, upon, but that you can review and analyze and discuss, and, and, and I guess it goes back to what Wendy was saying too, it also depends on, if you're looking at a domestic interior, who put it together and why they put it together in a certain way. The more idiosyncratic it is, the more you have to analyze it from a, a, a critic's point of view. Yeah, yeah how it was done and really the professionalism and the follow through and and the intent is it authentic is it is it not authentic it's i mean i think all the criteria for making a good story are the criteria of of you know what you feel as as a guest walking into somebody's house right you know you you sense immediately the intention that space and you sense if that space is really lived in and really loved and really respected and taken care of because again you know all of us have seen a lot of very wealthy interiors and it's are they taken care of are they maintained or do people understand what they have and do they love and and respect what they have so all of that comes into play i think when you're kind of looking and and, and just getting a sense of how comfortable it is well, and Su Suzanne, from a from a more contemporary modernist viewpoint, I mean, one of the things that I've always found incredibly disturbing is if you're going to make 
a, a beautiful modern interior, and a, I mean modern in a broad sense, um, not necessarily modernist, but let's say contemporary. Contemporary interior, very clean lines, very simple, very spare, with architecture to match. If you don't maintain that mm. day by day, it falls apart because the perfection is sort of the point of it. Yeah, right. And this used to happen with Paul Rudolph's interiors because he always had very wide interiors and often very uh, thick fabrics and all that. And they, they would get dirty and it didn't bother him. You know, it was both in his office and, a, and his apartment. But it never bothered him for them to get a little worn, a little dirty. I mean, he thought that was fine. And, but people would go in and want the immaculate thing that you see uh, when you photograph uh, a building or an interior and an interior for the first time. And you wouldn't have that immaculate quality. I must admit, for example, going up to the Getty last June uh, for a conference, I was just, I was expecting things to look kind of worn. They weren't. They looked 10 years old, 20 years, no, 1997, um, 20 some odd years older, and um, still immaculate. I mean, everything was still crafted and everything was, you know, polished and painted and, and uh, the materials outside were working uh, well, the marbles and, the, you know, the, the granite or whatever it was. I, it was um, uh, all the different kinds of materials that Richard Meyer used and then interior also. They love their building. They they showed that they liked the building by keeping it up. However, do you blame Paul Rudolph for saying, "Listen, this is the way. It's a lived-in kind of a, a res residential environment." Well, so and, and Paul Rudolph was the sort of person who Scotch tape was a viable construction material. <laughs> I remember going to his house on Beekman Place yeah. um, for a party when I worked for Nest Magazine, and walking in up that sort of plexiglass stair and looking up and there was literally strips of scotch tape yeah. holding uh, seams together in different spots through the house. And I thought, this is just wrong. <laughs> and then I actually sort of fell into it and thought, this is fine. I don't mind, you know. So funny. He had his own um, belief system on that. <laughs> somebody, somebody like Ward Bennett would never allow that. He always kept everything uh, in his apartment and or his house is very uh, his house out in uh, the springs very polished and clean and perfect. Mm. Mm. So it's we, in, in going back and looking at sort of architectural criticism versus interior criticism or when they were together, as as you all both said earlier you know, in, in the case of a restaurant or a hotel mm. or, a, or a public space, it's not only welcomed, but uh, the, the critical eye is demanded when it opens up, when, because it is a public space. It, it is something that everyone can see. So, uh, but a, a domestic interior, something that we all, that, that we cover, we visit, as we were saying earlier, doesn't really allow itself for that sort of scrutiny. Yeah. Well, you have it because you have a private client, for example, in the magazines, let's face it, all of us have been there. We have, um, we get clients to agree to have something published, their house or their interior. Mm -hmm. And of course they don't want to be made fun of or made fools of. And uh, arch need to do architects and interior designers, but nevertheless, <laughs> they're, they're, they're playing the game. They have to play the game in a sense. And, but the clients don't, and they don't want to be insulted. However, a hotel and a restaurant, that's a public venue and you should be able to criticize it as you as you want and also talk about what is shabby or what what kind of lighting is too harsh 
or uh, you know, often with LED, they go with some kind of thing. They say, oh, this is just like daylight. No, it's not. It's actually like morgue-like. It's like being, <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. it's not at all like daylight. And you just want to say, who, who did your lighting? No, you point out it is, it is a service that the public really needs to have criticism. I remember the one time I accepted a press trip to cover a hotel opening, which will remain nameless in this area. Uh, and I got there and I put my bags down and it was time to go you know, up to my room and I could not find the light switch to save my life. And it was dark outside, dark inside. And I thought, okay, I'm not gonna be the one to call downstairs and have someone come upstairs and show me how to turn the light on. And I got more frustrated and more frustrated and I thought, I feel stupid, okay, because I can't find the light. And I feel like I'm not cool because this is a cool hotel. So I should know where which <laughs> is. I should know how to do. I should probably blink five times and lights go on. <laughs> um, I was so angry by the end. And also it was so uncomfortable. Everything was cool. There was moss planted there and there was a slab of this there. And I thought, it's also just for photography because that as a person, actually staying here is a nightmare. So I think, you know, you deserve as a person who's whatever age to find the light switch, okay? I don't- But it's funny because criticisms like that, critical eye, a critical eye like that in a public space, in a, in a hospitality venue, yeah. um, all, all designers and architects read all these reviews and criticisms. And they're presumably, that sort of observation of where is the damned light switch <laughs> seeps into domestic architecture, domestic design, things that people, those are sort of valuable criticisms that inform or can inform interiors that, that would not necessarily lend themselves to a critical eye. And, um, the, I've stayed in a hotel in Luzerne by Jean Nouvel. And I stayed twice. And the second time I was wiser because Jean Nouvel loves dark, dark spaces. And he loves very low 25, uh, whatever, um, uh, candle lamps. And so the first time I never could unpack my bags. I was thinking of this one when we were saying that switch. So the second time I pulled out my flashlight and unpacked my bags. <laughs> and then when you go into the bathroom, it's all white light but when you're in your bedroom it's it is a dark as a crypt yeah. <laughs> not that i should talk i happen to have a bedroom that's all black so <laughs> i have to confess <laughs> i remember going to a hotel in france right after the montalembert um in paris was redone again it was it was it was an article that i was just sort of meant to write about you know the the renovation of an old hotel. And instead I became absolutely fascinated by how absolutely perfect everything was. I, I mean, there was nothing that, I mean, you know, I mean, all of us here, you know, we can read a sentence and find out what the wrong, where the wrong bit is, where the rhythm doesn't work. And, and I tend to look at interiors, especially a hotel from an editorial eye. I mean, I'm looking at, where's the error where's the error and the Montalembert was utterly wow. perfect and I couldn't believe how perfect it was 
And what I loved about it, especially, was that it was this very modern. It was an old hotel, but treated in a contemporary fashion. And they had sprinkled through it, basically, a narrative that was so brilliant to write about because it was the history of France. You had Louis XVI furniture, but you also had on that Louis XVI furniture, a statue from the Congo. And then you had something, and it was, it was literally like reading French history from uh, 1750 to um, the 1980s. There were all these elements of France. I mean, it couldn't have been more French, but it didn't look it, it didn't feel it. It was just, these these hallmarks these these sort of um stations of the cross that you knew after a while what the owners were after mm. was a, a was a, a french experience but that was subtle yeah that was so lovely that i loved writing about that was great fun because there was so much to unpack yeah absolutely it's like going into a museum so it's, it's that's a great idea too you know, because you have a whole museum of, of history going along with your hotel experience, in a sense, but not beating you over the head. And you can find the light switches. <laughs> and you don't need a flashlight to unpack. I think form follows function is so key in good design and interior design, especially in a public venue like a hotel or a restaurant, because if it's not going to work on that level, it's going to be annoying. I mean, no matter what it looks like, it's going to be annoying. On a macro level, it, it, it has to please and attract and delight so many people, yeah. so many disparate human beings right. that, that therefore, you know, a, a drawbacks are, are, are worth talking about or worth pointing out. And, yeah. um, and also there could be a point where you can, you can obviously give an idea to, to the next person doing the job and, and say, okay, doing a similar project. Okay, this is what went wrong with this. For example, I can tell whether a man or a woman has designed the bathroom of any hotel I walk in. And the reason is because the counter space for the makeup is so minuscule in so many, on so many angles. And I say, okay, this was not designed by a woman. And because they would know that I have to have this and I have to have that, and I have to have this on down the line. And when I have room and I'm criticizing a hotel uh, in an architectural magazine, I have room, I do go ahead and go into that. But often we don't have the room to, to explain every single, we've done the space in the editorial pages to explain everything that, that we find a flaw. But that's one of the most important ones to me. Yeah. You know, that's where you could learn from that. So. Can you explore that more broadly online? Yes, we, it means we have to go back and leave our future issue that we're supposed to be working on right as soon as we end one, one month and we begin on another. And you go mm. back and you're dealing with the past month and adding to that and then you, you're late on your next month. So there are editorial um, blocks. But, but I, do, I do really think that, that in, in so much of design, a really, a really critical eye that takes the uh, interiors as uh, particularly if we're talking about a more public space as seriously as as, as architecture it's, it's a different animal but it needs to be held to the same standards absolutely true i think so absolutely and i you know there are these criteria functional aesthetic symbolic culture slash cultural psychological and you know the expression of the psychology of either the client or the designer you know, that uh, makes it important. So if there is an actual practicing tradition, we could do, do more of that. 
write about more of that. Magazines from time to time do get into it, but but I think um, you have to have you just have to have a constant vigilance about let's are we doing it? Let's do it. Yeah, and also confidence that somebody actually is going to agree with you if you leave the argument open if you don't close it off and say this was done totally in this in a wrong way you don't want to be wishy-washy but you don't want to just close down the argument ada louise huxtable had strong point uh, point of view as you know and but she never closed down the argument she always presented it in some way that even though it was she would have these killer statements it would be somewhere where you thought this, I can, I can get her argument, she's backing it up, but it can also come back, if I were to meet her tomorrow, I could come back and say, but I disagree with you about that, and what do you, you know, why don't you think of this, or what, what's wrong with that? You know, that kind of thing. Mm. So you have to leave it open. Good point. Have that, that's yeah, I, I love reading her, the, the collected reviews. Of, of mm. her. She's, she's amazing, and, and you're right, she, she manages to, to, to wrap something up so beautifully. And she she hones in on one detail, either positively or negatively, and you realize she's really thought this through. the The light switch is a serious thing. Mm -hmm. you know, a centimeter down, a centimeter over, it's wrong, and 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 you believe her. You yeah, know? yeah, absolutely, very true, very true. And also, you know, who, who are the critics, and where are they coming from? That's the other thing. I mean, how does a critic get to become a critic? Okay, well, let's first talk about a practitioner becoming a practitioner. As we know, a lot of interior designers, Ward Bennett didn't go to interior design school, right? He didn't, right. He didn't go to college, period. A lot of interior designers and decorators, I've written about interior decorators in my, in my past history, who didn't go to interior, didn't study interior decorating. They learned it on the job, they had a sensibility, they put it together, and um, they knew what they were doing. They had an actual point of view and they, they were, they had a sense of proportion. They had a sense of scale. They had a sense of color. Mm -hmm. They actually could really do it. It's really, and even if you go to school, you sometimes don't come out knowing <laughs> how to really do a great building or how to do a great interior. So um, it's a lot of it is people have to work at it. And then the, the people who write about it have to work at it too, as you're exposed to it. You are, the three of us have been exposed to so much in our careers that if we didn't learn something from what, from exposure, then we, uh, you know, where, where, where are we? You know, we have it. We, we have that exposure. We have more exposure than a lot of our uh, colleagues in other fields. That's my argument even though I've studied a lot of it <laughs> of, about architecture. So, so, so criticism is something that is, is, is learned, a, a critical eye. I think the critical eye is developed. Uh, yes. Absolutely agree with that. I, yeah. And you also have to question yourself. What is it that I like? What, I, and what is like me? What is it that I like? What is it I don't like? Why you have to just keep examining your own assumptions. I find that I have to kind of check myself because it isn't about my taste. It's about, it's about the quality of the, of the project. And it's not about one's subjective taste. Although that comes into it too, I suppose, in a way, if you're honest. 
Yes, and taste didn't used to be a dirty word. Yeah. You know, the 18th century yeah. on, it was, it was okay to, yeah. to uh, develop a sense of taste and have a sense of taste. It actually was something that was uh, intellectual as well as sens sensual. So it was, it was really okay. And we somehow we got into thinking it's too personal, too subjective, and that's just a throwaway. We can actually have standards. We can all have a kind of a plateau where we have a good agreement, you know, a certain agreement among us of, of what makes where we reach a, a consensus, a common, Kant called it a census communis, of where you can reach common agreement about what is quality design, for example, in our fields. Yeah. And then one person may differ from another person, but that's, uh, then you can, then you discuss it. You may not agree, still may not agree, and you may say, "Finally, okay, that's personal." <laughs> you always did like blue. <laughs> Wendy Goodman, Suzanne Stevens, thank you so much for coming on the ADSTheat and talking about taste and architecture and interior design and the review and criticism thereof. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you. Great honor to join you both. Thank you so much. Thank you. The ADS Theat is produced and edited by Diane Dragan and Emma Wartsman. Music by Circus Marcus. All rights reserved by Condé Nast. To reach us about this episode or any other episodes, find us on social media at ArcDigest or email us at letters at arcdigest.com. <laughs>